are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Curious. Noisy. Spontaneous. Catherine Young is a composer and improviser currently based in Atlanta, where she teaches at Emory University. Her electroacoustic music and installations have been commissioned by the L.A. Phil, Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Music Now, Darmstadt, Third Coast Percussion, the University of Chicago's Smart Museum of Art. Relationship building and collaboration grounds her practice, and she's worked closely with performers such as Linda Yankowska of Distractfold, Weston Olenke, Wet Ink, Ensemble Del Niente, Yarn Wire, and her mentor, Anthony Braxton. As a bassoonist and improviser, Catherine amplifies her instrument and employs a flexible electronic setup, performing in ad hoc settings and with bands such as Architeuthis Walks on Land with violist Amy Simony and Beautifulish with percussionist and electronicist Sam Scranton, as well as her quartet, Pretty Monsters. Well, uh, let's get started with uh, your piece. And this is, is it Camille's? Yes. Camille's. It is. Um, this is for saxophone, electric guitar, piano, percussion, feedback, and no input mixers. And uh, this was performed by Ensemble Nickel. Um, was it written for them as well? Yes, yes. It was um, a commission from um, a festival for this group. And um, it was, yeah, it was a real pleasure to work with them remotely. Uh it was the summer of 2019 when I was writing this, but um, but we did a lot of Zooms and we shared a lot of files and we did a well, actually, actually we didn't do Zoom. Zoom wasn't a thing yet, right? but we did <laughs> we did a lot of of some kind of video Sky- chat Skype. Skype? Bef- wasn't Skype? It, wasn't it weird how like in two weeks Skype became such a thing of the past when the pandemic hit? It was like Zoom just took over almost immediately. It's totally crazy to think about it. Now we just use it as a like uh, a verb. But um, yeah, so this was for um, the Bludenzer um, Music Festival and um, that Clara Iannota um, was running at the time. And so, yeah, it was really amazing to get to work with this quartet. And um, I also, um, you know, kind of, made the most of my friends in Chicago when I was working on the piece. And so I, you know, um, like Mabel Kwan from Dalniente let me use her piano to, to try out things for the piano. And, um, Ryan Packard, uh, gave me some really, really, um, useful pro tips on some of the no input stuff. And so I really kind of use the resources of my community to help um, build the piece in part because I couldn't actually meet in person with the the musicians. So that was uh, who I was writing for. So it was a helpful, a helpful part of the process for me because more and more, I just need to have like hands-on right. uh, contact with, with sound. So yeah, I was, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. So since you're, you're working at, you're working with the ensemble at a distance, um, I was going to ask you about what your process is for a piece like this, where, you know, you're the, I would say the majority of this is not, is 
for sound that is not just strictly like pitch and rhythm. Like you're not going to be able to represent this in Finale or Sibelius. So what is it, what is that process like for, you know, putting, putting these ideas down on paper? You know, you, you just said you have to kind of be hands on. So can you kind of describe? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's um, right. I definitely Sibelius and Finale give me very little useful information. Um, So it's, I do a lot of, 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 record like meet so I do I need to meet with someone who has the instrument or can play it um or get my hands on one myself and then I I improvise or I ask I sort of hang out with the with a performer while they try things and we kind of like discover things together I record things take a lot of videos and then I kind of go back and um use those videos to sort of help mock up the piece for myself as I'm writing it and to remember and like make sure that I don't get too abstracted from <laughs> what the actual uh, sounds are and how how you actually make them um, in the in the composing process. So and, and with the no input stuff, I also once um, I, I met with Ryan a few times, but then I, I had a setup in my studio and I just sort of like would, would improvise with it and with the piano as well, ma- piano materials and find things that I liked and, you know, little snippets of improvisation would sort of turn into chunks of material and then I would ab- get compositional and abstract from there, but like kind of in some ways it you start i start to kind of collage different ideas that exist in different moments yeah. <laughs> together is um, is it yeah. almost are you you know you you're taking recordings and videos are you almost kind of like composing this like you would like almost a fixed media track are you working almost in a daw like with those with those original materials and like you say kind of mocking it up for yourself I I didn't with this piece, um, but during the pandemic, like fast forward six, nine months, I was trying to make, to write some pieces and I was working again remotely. And actually one of the pieces um, is a solo saxophone piece for Patrick Stadler, the saxophonist in Nickel. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, you know, the whole, (laughs) the, the, art of the forced remote collaboration now became its own, its whole thing. And that was all you had. And so, uh, Patrick and I shared a whole bunch of recordings. And, um, I also did this on a piece with a a solo piece with Olivia DePrado that I was working on around the same time and sharing a bunch of recordings back and forth. And I did in fact mock those up and I actually composed those pieces in the DAW first. And then I transcribed them. Um, And Camille's was not written that way. Um, but I do, like in the score, I I have links to to like video examples and audio samples and that I keep on a Google Drive so that people can, you know, check out the demos and, you know, be clear about the sounds. Um, and I don't know if I liked that mock-up. I mean, it was <laughs> useful the, the, the way I, I did those solo pieces. Like, it was good and... I learned a lot, and I I like the pieces, but I'm not sure that that's. I got kind of obsessed with the way the mock-up sounded. I got a little. Yeah. It became. I think you know. I talked to my students about this. Like, don't get too attached to that 
to that Sibelius rendition because mm-hmm. that's not what's going to be like. Um, and I fell into that trap with my own uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my own mock-up where I was like, well, why didn't you play it like that? That right. one time you made that one <laughs> random mistake in that multiphonic is so amazing and I've built the whole piece around it. Could you please <laughs> do that? So anyway, um, yeah, this was this was per, in Camille's was a little bit more, you know, I was imagining the sounds, but I had um, I had the references for myself to check in with frequently. So you're talking about like on the score, you know, I've I've read in other pieces of yours and certainly in your bio that uh, improvisation is a big part of your musical practice. Like in this piece, uh, how much is like strictly notated how much is kind of controlled aleatory how much is improvisation um percentage wise uh let i'd have to like go back and like really look at it carefully but i mean there's really there are sounds that have internal kind of aspects of unpredictability like right um so there's that layer of, of yeah, unpredictability kind of embedded in the piece. Um, but really, it's pretty much fully notated, mm-hmm. um, except for one no-input solo moment by, that the percussionist plays that is pr- improvised towards the end of the piece. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of the no-input stuff is really simple like a very simple patch that like is pretty reliable and you know get this one type of sound and just hang like you know it, I didn't want to make it super complicated for them um do they have to I mean you were you know you said you were working with a no input mixer that uh, you had or someone gave you or something like that well, I got yeah, I had my own setup. Um, okay, but I sort of yeah got some lessons basically. And then, d- do you is it basically the thing like yo know, you have to have this mixer? Well, that is the most reliable. If yeah, it's most re- I, I I specify in the score like this is the this is this the mixer with which I got these sounds. Here's mm-hmm. a picture of the patch. Thing. Here's all the controls. That's exactly how they were. Um, Brian Arkinall, who played percussion, or who plays percussion in nickel, has some experience with no input. So mm. he felt comfortable using his own mixer and finding similar patches Got and it. sounds. Um, um, Antoine used my mixer. I just brought it over, and we just used my setup because it was – reliable yeah um, for for the piano part yeah because i mean i've i've messed with no input mixing on on several pieces and it's like it it is something that you can learn it is something that you can like develop your your patch and like figure out what it does but um i have a in in our electro studio at my at at uh, Ohio University, I have like permanently set up a couple no input mixers and it's like, they could not be more different. 
you know, even if you try to patch the same way, like, you know, one of them has the, um, uh, the, like a frequency cut button, uh, right below the gain. Those buttons are, are just magic. You know, yeah. they're the, they do all the cool things. And it's like, if they yeah. don't have that, if they don't, if you don't have those buttons, it's like, oh, well, you know, you're not going to get anywhere close to the sounds, but it was. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So for this, this piece, part of the idea was that the, um, there was like a, f- there was, there was like a no input patch, but there was also a feedback patch where a speak, the percussionist holds a speaker and this is something that Ryan Packard has like developed an uh, elaborate um, vocabulary for in his own solo practice. But um, the sp- there's a speaker that the percussionist is literally putting on face down on the drum and sort of using. And I actually had them use it as a activator of the drum head just acoustically. So mm-hmm. even before there's any feedback going, it's just like a thing to scrape the drum with. Um, and then. There's also a, a contact mic um, on the on the drum, so there's that feedback patch, and then there's a little bit of no input too. So it's a kind of combo. Yeah, when when it when you said feedback, I was I was almost just thinking it was just going to come from the guitar, but you're no, actually the guitar doesn't do any feedback. <laughs> right, it's <I> <laughs> a good point. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So, so what do you, you said you have a contact, uh, mic, like, uh, is it, a yeah, sna- like, is it a snare drum or is it? Yep. Are, it's you, just on the snare drum. Mm-hmm. Just on the bottom. Uh, and then you put the speaker on the top and. Actually, I had them do the contact mic right on top. Okay. Okay. I used one of those like AKG kind of nice, um, mm-hmm. contact mics. And then, um, yeah, yeah, it's, and then you can kind of control the 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 feedback like with the angle of the speaker yeah. um and then there's also also a feed no that's in a piece i'm doing now i don't think there's a feedback patch in the piano gosh i don't remember i don't think so and but there are i did have him use baby monitors <laughs> to make mm. um feedback uh, so there was so I I wanted there to be these sounds and of the no input mixer and of the feedback and things like that but I also um, really wanted them to be con- pr- pretty controllable and like reproducible <clears throat> so there the, I kept things kind of simple yeah the no input mixer you know it has that kind of classic you know just kind of like rhythm. Uh, just repeated, uh, repeated impulse kind of sound, and in the in the um, uh, in the improvisation you talked about later, you know, you can ramp that up and actually get a pitch, and the, 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 like it's very expressive the way it's working. But in the beginning, it almost sounds like that uh, repeated impulse sound. It, it almost sounds like it's being EQ'd in a way. Like, is that in the mixer? Is that later? Or is that just like? that mixer that was being used. Yeah, I I I'm not I guess it was just the the way that mixer made that sound. Yeah, it's like it 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 it's it's like it timbrely just shifts a little bit. It's almost 
You know, mm. it, it's almost as if like there was a slight low pass filter being applied to because it's such like a, you know, very like impulsy sound that any kind of like high frequency attenuation is is going to yeah. shift that a little bit. And it just I don't know. There were just some times it sounded like it was more alive than I've heard in no input mixer sound with that particular uh, with that particular like patch or, or sound. You know, it was it was really interesting. Yeah. Well, that's thank you. That's great. I wonder if it was coming from the snare, if it had to do with the fact of the 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 um of the oh. feedback patch in you know coming into the mixer. I mean, oh, they weren't yeah. on the same channel, but you know, with the panning, the weird panning thing, the way the panning can mess with the yeah. no input stuff, and it maybe it um. Maybe they were interacting that way. But what we're kind of talking about right now and what you talked about earlier with, you know, you had sounds that uh, even though the piece is pretty strictly notated, there are still sounds that have that kind of unpredictability about them. Would you say that is is are is that kind of, you know, sounds you're like, is that your primary medium, I guess, are like things that are innately unpredictable and you're maybe trying to harness that in some way? Yeah. So I definitely am attracted to sort of less stable, slightly, you know, sounds or complex sounds that have the potential for instability. Um, And I think the kind of, line I'm trying to balance on is that well I, I like that the sounds might do something that I don't expect like I like finding things that I think are rich and that I enjoy listening to and I'm excited about that like pique my curiosity but then I especially like them if like they might do something that I don't expect or mm-hmm. that I can't notate or that um, but but like I have a sense that they'll be within the realm of the things that I like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that totally. That I'm going for. So, like, there's, like, this fear of, like, possible possible sounds. And I actually am hopeful that the piece will surprise me or that it will do something different on the second performance or whatever um, that I, I hadn't really expected. And so, yeah, I like to kind of try to... Inf- in- infuse it with dif- with uh, some 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 materials that might that might do that. Why is it called uh, Camille's? It's a Donna Haraway reference um, to um, a chapter from the last chapter from her book um, "Staying with the Trouble," and it's a speculative fictional piece that Donna Haraway wrote that's like, you know, really, it's not great sci-fi or fantasy writing, but, you know, she's a theorist. She's a brilliant theorist. She, I don't think she's the reason she's not a fiction writer primarily. Um, Mm -hmm. But the, um, but I had been reading this book and thinking a lot about the, the ideas in it. um, And, uh, I, the, the story is about, um, 
a sort of future on Earth where humans, in order to be stewards of animals that are uh, becoming endangered or, or in precarious positions, like actually start to graft uh, the DNA, portions of the DNA onto humans from the animals onto humans. It's kind of wild and I'm not advocating, yeah. <laughs> I'm not necessarily advocating for any kind of create, but I, I just, the, mostly it sparked my imagination and I was like, it's kind of obvious, but I was like, I wonder what it sounds like to a butterfly to be a butterfly. Like they're, you know, like the wings flapping sound like nothing when you're outside and you right. see a little butterfly floating by and it's like so, you know, pastoral and gentle. And then, but like, actually, since I wrote the piece, I wound up hearing a butterfly really close by and their wings sound actually kind of like more like my piece than I imagine. Like, like really bananas just like, you yeah. know, um, because they're working really hard to flap their wings. So I just was kind of, like, I just wanted to, I let my imagination run wild with, like, what a kind of, like, cyborg butterfly might sound like. And um, that was kind of what I was thinking about as I wrote the piece. <clears throat> that's that's interesting. Like, you would, because if you were a butterfly and your wings are flapping at that at that speed, or even, you know, even worse, think like a, like a dragonfly or, or something totally. like that, where they're, like... You know, you could probably actually like produce like at least low low pitches from that. You would almost wonder evolutionarily, does the can the butterfly like or the dragonfly or something like that not hear below a certain frequency as to like, you know, cut out yes. the sound in of themselves. In fact, I think I think they're certain they're doing some research on what butterflies actually here and there yeah. are some 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 interesting correlations yeah yeah because um, they're like uh i'm i'm thinking of like uh amazon frogs you know because in in the amazon it, it, it's so cacophonous all the time and to be able to like hear another member of your own species every frog like has its own like particular pitch and their ears are tuned to that pitch so yep. yeah yeah that's oh my god that's okay yeah, and so I was like, what if, yeah, well, yeah, just what, and so the piece kind of uh, actually, very, in my mind, very literally goes through this sort of life cycle of a butterfly um, with different, with the with the different sections. Yeah. Um, it's probably not, if you don't know that, it's probably not what you think about, but <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I was really on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> Well, awesome. Let's let's listen to it. So this is Camille's performed by Ensemble Nickel.
let's move on to your piece, Like a Halo. And okay. uh, this is for prepared violin, uh, soprano voice, alto sax, horn, harp, and piano. You wrote this for Del Niente. The recording we're going to hear is by Wet Ink, right? Right. Yes. Um, your description of this work on your website kind of fascinates me. So can you talk us through the the concept behind Like a Halo? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's really um, just, it's sort of, there. My, I took this picture of my friend and it was like all with Amy and it was like um, all around her, it was just this like burst of light and um, I just, you know, I took that picture like sometime. And then I was like trying to figure out an idea for a piece. And um, I had been working closely with Austin Welleman, who is now plays with Jack String Quartet. But at the time, he was living in Chicago and playing with Spectral Quartet and mm-hmm. Dalniente. And we had been working on a big solo project um, together. And we had found this sound that we hadn't really had, that hadn't made it into that piece, but it was like a fun technique on this prepared violin. And it involved this, like, it was basically just like, it was basically one of those bow pop, bow crunch, overpressure bow pop things. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the detuning of the strings, it was like extra. And um, <laughs> so we, so I was thinking about, you know, that sound was kind of like in the back of my mind. I saw this picture and I just kind of did a little bit of research and it turns like there's this optical effect known as a halo um, or a glory. I don't know. There, There's a lot of more detail to it than I'm going to be able to tell you right now. But basically it's like somehow when um, like ice, like when the light hits the ice, that are in in cold cold air, it creates this sort of this particular effect um, where the the light is is ref- reflected and split up in the air and changes direction, and then it creates this halo effect around the observer. I think it's actually something that might that happens in real life, not necessarily on 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 film mm-hmm. or camera. But um, yeah, I just it kind of it reminded me of the sound in the sense that there was this like. It's this like little crunchy sound that then basically you hear the open strings ringing. So there's like this little halo of sound around the sort of noisy core. And like then I, with that idea for a sound in mind, I kind of went um, investigating each of the instruments in this, let's be honest, totally weird (laughs) instrumentation. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but <laughs> um, so I, which was assigned to me, which was like requested uh, uh, for me uh, of me to write for for violin, soprano, voice, sax, French horn, harp, and piano. And I, for you know, when I first got the instrumentation, I was just like, "What am I gonna do with this?" Yeah, right. And so, yeah, so I that sound type, that idea, that metaphor of of the halo kind of guided my explorations with 
with each of the instruments and kind of ended up being the like a formal uh you know structuring force for the um for the way the piece develops as well how is the uh violin uh prepared yeah so this is a preparation that that um, the same preparation that Austin and I used in this piece called Diligence is to Magic as Progress is to Flight. And what you do is you really radically detune the fourth string so much so that it's flapping against the mm-hmm. fingerboard. Mm-hmm. And it produces this like growly sound. Yeah, And we did this on not his primary instrument sure. on a like $60 violin we got off the internet. Um, but then the second and third string, I think the second string might be more or less the same, but the third string is detuned as well, and it's like moved over close to the second string, and you, there's a clip, so that then when you play those the second and third string, you always play them as a pair, mm-hmm. and the third string is kind of like this ghost sh- shadow to the second string, yeah. always kind of giving this like raspy sound. Um, and then the E string is the same, okay, as always. Is this a- is this amplified? Yes, and then it is amplified, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the end of the piece, there's this like rhythmic kind of. Uh, like quick rhythmic almost percussive sound is that coming from the violin as well like the extended passage that's like that's the harp with the harp okay with like a piece of paper woven between the strings got it okay yeah 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 i mean getting towards that like repetition kind of factors into this piece uh I would say like far more than the the last one, and it's it's kind of reminiscent of like loops moving at different speeds, and I, I mean I think it's really effective, and I'm I'm wondering like kind of why loops, uh, where does that instinct come from in you? Because I've spoken with other composers that have different reasons for like using. Um, like exactly the same material in in that kind of like repetitive fashion. They're and they're not doing something that's like, you know, minimalist or or something like that. Um, right. So I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, I think the idea was that there would be something static that then um, can collided with like and produced in a big. A flurry of activity, mm-hmm. like the halo, and then on the other side of that halo, you get something different. Yeah, a different static. Mm. So, um, I liked the kind of like, I guess the repet the repetitive materials produce this kind of like uh, this zone of kind of static listening that I thought would then you know, set up the like exciting moments even better. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love those moments like that, the, like gesturally they're, they're really interesting and they come at, the, I, I think you have a really nice, um, uh, a really nice sense of like proportion and timing for when those, for when those moments show up. 
And know, I, I had to revise a couple times, to be honest. Like, the yeah. first time I was, like, not totally happy with the pacing and mm-hmm. the proportions. And so I was like, oh, this has got to be shorter. This has got to be a little longer. And then um, I was I was happier with it. But, but that's yeah. – but in my opinion, like, pacing and proportion is the hardest thing of co- well, composing. I mean, just end of statement. Hardest thing of composing is making something mm. feel right, you know? Yeah, especially when – I mean, I just I, I I know what you mean, and I feel like that is why I never really feel like I un- know the piece, what the piece is until it's been performed. Yeah, because you pacing always changes. It, between I mean, you're you imagine it, you go, you can like play it in your head as many times, or use whatever playback is useful, or imagine it. And like I use metronomes, I just sit there with the metronome and try to like sing it in my head, or you mm-hmm. know, imagine this the stuff in my head to feel it out. Um, but inevitably, that's different when people, when a group of people are playing the sounds, and then that is always. Is, is even more different when they're doing it for an audience. Like, so I think that pacing is, is really mysterious and amazing and cool. <laughs> and I mean, tricky. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I mean, I, I truly believe this and I, I tell my students this all the time that, you know, the, the first performance is only like the beginning of, you yeah. Know. So, yeah. Do, do it you, feels like the beginning. You're like, okay, now I know what this piece is, and now I can deal with it if I need to in some different ways. I totally agree with you, and I hate the idea that like premieres are the end of the end of the piece. It yeah. really feels like the beginning, and I 100% agree. Do you yeah. do you uh, if that piece does need some like alteration? Do you go through an extensive uh, revision process? Would you say like that's kind of part of the composition process for you yeah for sure if i mean definitely like if the piece needs some tweaks some nips and tucks or changes i absolutely will do it um sometimes they don't miraculously but (laughs) right yeah Yeah, and i I mean there there's totally that school of thought where it's like oh well it's done let me just uh, learn from this and move on to the next thing. And it's like, ah, you know. That's... Yeah, I guess if like, but if you ever want someone to play it again, I I would, I would, I would want to fix it. If I mean, you know, I guess I think there's something to be said for that. You you know, you do need to move on. But if the if the revisions are like, this part needs to be, like. 10 seconds longer or yeah, two seconds shorter right. to real and, and that kind of adjustment can make a huge difference, right? Like just a few seconds more or less or like, um, yeah. So yeah, you don't want to get into like Pierre Boulez territory where, you know, he's, he's revising. Oh, it started out as a flute solo, but now it's an orchestra piece, but now it's vibraphone and electronics, but now it's flute, <laughs> uh, MIDI flute and electronics. <laughs> Like you don't want to get into that territory, probably, but uh, but yeah, I, I I totally see your point. Like, you know, there there is a certain point where you just kind of have to walk away and say, okay, this is this is as good as it's gonna get. Um, yeah, they might yeah. still have some problems, but you know, no amount of tweaking is gonna make it 
any better. It's like it's at 95 percent right now. And if I change this part, that's going to throw this part out. Yeah. And it's still going to be at 95 percent. So, yeah. 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 Uh, let's listen to this piece, and like I said at the uh, at the beginning, we're going to hear uh, the Wet Ink Ensemble uh, perform this, and this is from their album Wet Ink Twenty. This is like a halo.
All right, so let's talk about your last piece. Now, this is this is uh, your duo uh, with Sam Scranton called Beautifulish, um, yeah. and we're gonna hear a track called Inchworm from your 2020 uh, self-titled album. So, you're a bassoonist, correct? Right. And Sam is percussion and electronics. And I think the the listeners will have the same reaction as I did when I first heard this. And I'm like, "Wait, what? Those are those two <laughs> instruments doing this track? I want to know everything <laughs> because this is so cool." <laughs> yeah, so uh well, okay. So I play the bassoon, but I play it through with amplification and through guitar effects pedals. So this track especially has a ton of that. Well, and this duo with Sam in I guess in general, um, utilizes the effects and the amplification a lot um, because I we kind of found this nice resonance around percussive, kind of percussive vocabulary, mm-hmm. which is stuff that I can do... Um, key clicks, other things that I can do with the bassoon that, you know, sound like pretty much nothing without amplification, but with amplification and processing can become a whole, a whole other thing. Um, and then, you know, the, the pedals themselves, like, you know, can, are fun to make, make, make sound. So there's a lot of effects pedals, a little bit of bassoon, (laughs) um, (laughs) Uh, and, and Sam, you know, has, at the time we recorded, he's got a sort of different setup now, but back when we recorded this, we, um, he was using, um, like contact mics on things like little shims or pieces of wood and like a hacky sack on that. And then like processing it, um, through some, some different analog things, um, now he's gotten a whole setup with um, module with a modular synth. Um, he went into that zone during the pandemic, um, and I'm excited. We're going to play together in person for the first time since 2019. Oh my God. Uh, 
on Saturday. I'm pretty psyched. That uh, is exciting. I'm going to Chicago like a week from a week from today. A week from the day we're recording this. Um, we're I'll be in Chicago for the Frequency Festival and we're playing together. Um, so I'm excited to hear his new setup in person. But yeah, anyway, so we we uh, spent a lot of time just sort of playing, you know, getting together without a show or any or a band name or any particular like um, deadline and just kind of improvising together, slowly kind of codifying some things into, you know, pieces that or, you know, ideas for starting points for improvisations or, or little st- or structures to help ourselves um, ground uh, structured improvisations and this is this piece is mostly improvised. Um, okay. I think this piece is a hundred percent improvised. There's a few on the album that are more more composed, but so now that now that I kind of understand a little bit more about how the sounds are being produced, how are you miking the bassoon to yeah. to amplify it? Yeah. So I have um I have a vocal. Mm-hmm. That ha- I have my so the vocal is the neck the curved neck of the bassoon, and um, I have a second one that has I have an acoustic one and then I have a second one that has a little hole drilled into it and like a mount that kind of ex- comes out of it that I bought commercially, um, and there's this little Telex pickup that fits into that mount. Um, it's about a, the size of a quarter, mm-hmm. and it looks, or a nickel, and it looks like, um, kind of like a hearing aid, or okay. a, and I, I mean, Telex is a is a telephone technology. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I can tell, I got this in like the year two two thousand and four or five um, from a double read website. It came with no specs. Um, because like bassoonists don't care about that, I guess, or, or I don't know why. Um, so I don't, it has been, it's a bit of a mystery still. I've like looked up telex and I, I think it's more than a contact mic, but, uh, also it definitely gets the tactile sounds of the instrument, but it also gets an insanely clean sound over the whole, um, the whole range of this instrument that's like notoriously hard to, to mic or yeah. record. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like the sound of the pickup, and they don't make it anymore. I have a backup, but. <laughs> Smart. There's, there's Smart. another there's another pickup out there that's still commercially made that I think would work similarly called the Little Jake. Um, but this one, the one I have been using, um, yeah, it gets a really clean signal across the whole instrument, but it is not a beautiful tone like you're not it's not like if you want a beautiful bassoon sound you know amplify just acoustic bassoon sound amplified i would not recommend this right but it's if if i may if you want a beautiful ish exactly there it is boom Boom. you did it roll credits yep exactly (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah if you want to process it yeah then it's great because it's just really clean, hot signal. Um, and I actually, I mean, when I started, I just was trying to play. 
I just wanted a, a kind of beautiful bassoon sound louder. I was playing like in places where I needed to project or with drums or something um, where I needed to be louder. But um, this was what I could find and I, what I could afford at the time. And so then I kind of got into pedals in an attempt to mitigate the nasal quality of the pickup. Yeah. And then over time, that just became the pedals kind of, I realized, oh, there's a lot more that they can do than just like make the bassoon sound better. Um, or, and yeah, then they became their, their own thing. So I'm, I'm actually thinking back to the piece now. I'm wondering now the things that I may have been attributing to percussion, I'm now thinking are probably bassoon. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Awesome. Yeah, we, I mean, I think like we, yeah, we, we kind of, I I had, I had the setup that I had been playing with for a long time and Sam was kind of in a, in a phase where he was looking to kind of come up with a new setup. So he kind of modified his setup to kind of meet me where I was and, and then that sort of formed this the materials and sounds that I chose to use when playing with him um so yeah it's I think what I like about our duo is that you can't tell and that you it's all kind of mixed together um in a, a little bit magical way maybe um so yeah yeah I mean I I definitely agree it is it is magical like um, and, and to be perfectly honest, I don't even know if seeing it live would demystify it, you know? Yeah. Like that's, and I think that's, what's so cool about it, you know? Um, there are, there are some tracks where I play actual notes with the read that sound <laughs> more, <laughs> that give, that give away the instrument right. to a certain yeah. extent. Um, but yeah, like, uh, it's, I mean, the, the, the pedals that I use are pretty simple and mostly just like, you know, bot, you know, standard, they're not, they're not super boutique. I have one boutique pedal and the rest are like boss yeah. pedals. Um, but I have this boss octave pedal that is a bass octave pedal that I found in the practice space that I was practicing in at one point when I was in my twenties and like. Nobody claimed that pedal for a long time. And then Yoink. my friends were like, I think it's yours. And um, it is my, I love, it's it's amazing because it, it uh, it's like gets this whole other low octave of the bassoon and it also has overdrive on it. So like it kind of like bring, if you're use if I'm using air sounds, kind of can make this whole distorted, yeah, really powerful air noise stuff and. And then I have, uh, I have a uh, whammy pedal, which you have to use very carefully. <laughs> it can sound terrible, mm. but it also gives me like upward pitch um, shifting options and like pitch bending stuff. And kind of a it extends. It gives me high high sounds. Like for you know the as a bassoonist, like that was an area that I I was um, I was envious of, and I wanted more high sounds. So the the whammy pedal does that. And then I used to have a reverb pedal in the chain, but I took it out because it, eh. And then 
I think I, and I but I added delay, which yeah. is definitely present in this track. And uh, oh, and I have EQ, which at the front, and I and I run my chain backwards from guitarist, so my volume pedals at the end at the end, so I can shut off the whole thing because I like to be able to go fully acoustic or fully amplified to kind of go back and forth. And so at this point, I mean, I, I will improvise with just an acoustic bassoon, but really uh, my I feel like my instrument is the bassoon and amplification and pedals, the B- whole kind bassoon of... Bassoon plus. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, where can people uh, find your album if they want to get it? Oh, yeah. It's on Bandcamp. Um, we released it with Shinkoyo Artist Pool. And, uh, yeah, you can awesome. listen to it or buy it and or buy it. And we have tapes we can send you. Ooh. I'll Our... send you one, Rob. You want a cassette? Do you have a cassette player? I don't. Ah, rats. <laughs> I don't even have a CD player anymore. Like, I know. There's nothing... There, no physical media can be played in this house. Um, really? Yeah. Even, do you even for young people? I I think like yeah, I think it's it definitely clears out a lot of clutter. But I I like to have the I like to have them around sometimes. I do too. Like I love I I love the physical media. You know I. I with with music, it just became a a thing of. You know, like, well, everything it, it was also it was for us, it was really um, moving abroad and then coming back. Oh, like, of course. We kind of yeah. got rid of a lot um, to make that a lot easier. And as it turns out, like uh, getting that kind of stuff through customs uh, is oh, a nightmare. Um, our, well, I'll still send you a tape and you, you can just put it on your shelf. I will. And That'd it can be, be awesome. an object, an, uh, an object, a, be, a beautiful object. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, let's listen to it. This is inchworm by Beautifulish from their self-titled debut album.
All right, last question. Um, All right. How did you find music as the thing you wanted to pursue for your life? Oh, wow. Um, I think it came in large part through the, the people that I met who were doing the music. And at a few different moments, I would say, in my life, significant moments of, like, deciding to try to audition for, for you know, for music school as when I was in high school or tr- figuring out where I could maybe apply for a master's program at some point. Like, it was really – those decisions were almost always – about like oh those people are doing that I like those people yeah maybe I could do that oh all those people went there oh okay oh those people seem like I really like hanging out with those people they're listening to all this kind of music like you know and then the music follows but um a lot of it is always it has always been a, a social um pursuit for me and one that um has always been that it's like part of the beauty of of it is that I also form these really deep and meaningful relationships with people mm-hmm. that um I kind of through making music together um I think are yeah I don't I mean I have many wonderful friends who I don't play music with who aren't music friends, but, like, there's something about playing music with people that, like, really, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like nothing else, so, in terms of, like, the connections you can make, and, yeah, so I think it's all about the people. You know, I've done probably, like, 150, like, 160 episodes of this, and that has never been the answer. That's really? that's gorgeous. I love that answer because in in many ways like I think that's what like keeps me in music is like yeah. all the all the people because I'm like I'm really naturally extroverted. So um the you know the pandemic has been a freaking nightmare um in yeah. more you know in in all ways. But uh, that that disconnection that like, you know, you can't play with people. You can't even talk like realistically, like get in a room and, you know, make sounds together. Um, but yeah, as as I said, like the, I, I love that answer that it's like about the, you know, the people you meet and the relationships you form. That's that's wonderful. So before uh, before we go, can you tell people where they can? Obviously, you you mentioned your Bandcamp, but where they can find uh, more of your other projects because you play with you're you're in several different groups, and of course you have just your like your music, your like uh, Catherine Young composer music. Um, <laughs> yeah. So where can they find all that stuff or like connect with you online? Totally. I I have a website. CatherineYoung.info because CatherineYoung.com was already taken. Um, but I like info. Um, you can find my email there. 
I would be happy to hear from you if you have questions about music. Um, I have a list, uh, a link there to a blog where I maybe haven't recently, but I used to do a really good job of updating it with concerts. Well, I guess when concerts stopped, I stopped updating my (laughs) blog and I forgot that I was supposed to do that. Um, And then, yeah, I'm on social media and um, I try to put, try to let people know about concerts that way. So, and shows and and releases and yeah. So score, some scores are on, well, not that many scores are on my website, but I'd be happy to send them or some are available through PSNY um, and then others are self-published and there's links to music and stuff. So yeah, it's there. Mostly that's the best place. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Catherine. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.